This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Baxter Healthcare Corporation has provided funding for this podcast, but all content was developed independently by the presenter. Therefore, the views expressed on the podcast are those of the speaker and should not be attributed to Baxter Healthcare Corporation. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Mitchell Levy, MD, MCCM, a leader in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Dr. Levy is Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He's with us today to talk about the future of sepsis research and GAPS priorities and goals. And I'm happy he's joined us today to elaborate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Levy. Pleasure to be here, Margaret. Uh, before we start, do you have any disclosures? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. So before we look to the future, can you provide some insight on the latest developments with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign? I know the bundle was recently revised. Uh, can you talk about what does that mean for clinicians? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The, the bundle, it's an interesting story with the R01 bundle. We, we originally thought that this was uh, something that would be widely uh, well-received. Uh, that is, we, we felt that in many patients, especially those with shock, but even some of those with severe sepsis who have um, severe renal failure or who are on mechanical ventilation, that the truth is when, when clinicians feel, oh, I think this patient is septic, we do things right away. We get blood cultures immediately. We give antibiotics immediately. If they're hypotensive, we start pressors immediately. We give fluids immediately if their lactate's elevated or if they're hypotensive. So we thought this was a, a reflecting basic clinical practice. And uh, to our amazement, it caused a firestorm of controversy, mainly in the United States. And we also felt that the reason for the change in the bundle was supported by our data. So our data being in both adults and children from the New York State mandated public reporting data, we demonstrated that um, compliance with the three-hour bundle, that every hour delay starting at one hour for compliance was associated with a statistically significant increase in the odds ratio of mortality. That was true for overall bundle compliance, the three-hour bundle, in the emergency department, and it was true for administration of antibiotics. In addition, we published in JAMA through also the New York State database that uh, when children received the bundle within one hour, there was, again, a statistically significant decrease in mortality. So we felt that the change from three and six hours to one hour was clearly data-driven. And more than that, even more than that, I, I think we felt like, no, this is what we all do. We don't sit around and wait. And as Jean-Louis Vincent is famous for saying, he says, you don't say just three hours and wait three hours and at the end of two hours and 45 minutes give the antibiotic. You give it as soon as you, as you, as soon as you think of it. And um, I, I think what the interesting thing is, is 
the main objection, and I do understand this, we at that time said that the as we have in the surviving sepsis campaign from the beginning, that the time zero, the time the clock starts in the emergency department, is triage time, mainly because that's uh, reproducible, it's easy to measure, it's not opinion-based, et cetera. And I think that was fine for clinicians when it was six hours and then three hours, but when it was an hour, and I think a lot of clinicians in the United States emergency department physicians, and not unreasonably so, assumed that because CMS picked up our three- and six-hour metrics, that they would pick up our hour one metrics. So suddenly they were very concerned that they were going to be held accountable for getting antibiotics on board within an hour of triage. That's a, that's a very, very difficult task. So consequently, in conversations with our partners at, in the European Society and the American College of Emergency Physicians, we changed the time zero to time of sepsis recognition, meaning that when the clinicians recognize that sepsis is present, uh, that's when the clock starts. And, and that was much more acceptable to our emergency department clinicians. In New York, the, the pediatric data collection and the, the measures required the one-hour bundle. And there was, I, I served on the pediatric sepsis task force making those um, criteria, there was extensive discussion on the one hour because of exactly the issue that you raised. Is it is it really feasible and practical to do this? But it was data-driven, and the New York Department of Health said, do you believe that one hour is the best thing for the children? And we had to say yes, so we went with it. But it is very challenging to meet that one hour, depending on how you define time zero. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting that the Europeans did not have the same objections as our American uh, colleagues, and in part because they're not worried about reimbursement being withheld. Right. And and a lot of the discussion, I might say, um, was what do we think is right for patients? Right. Do we believe that it should be an hour? And, and that most of us do. Right. At the same time, the reality is <clears throat> if we're held accountable to a standard that's almost impossible to achieve, right. we defeat the purpose of the quality indicators. Right. And in New York, <clears throat> at least, the public reporting of it was also a factor you right. know, in addition to the, the reimbursement nationally that is, uh, is an issue. So um, you have the practical fighting against the ideal. Can you talk about the goals of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign for the next few years and what's on the horizon? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. There's a couple of things. First, we published within the last year the results of the research committee. So we have a Surviving Sepsis Campaign Research Committee, and our goal was to establish a research agenda for sepsis that we could share with national funding agencies, with funders of all kinds, et cetera. And <clears throat> we identified six areas uh, for research from uh, ranging from basic science questions about bioenergetics to clinical questions such as the most appropriate fluids, the most appropriate monitoring techniques, things that we've been honestly asking ourselves for how long, 25 years? Decades. Longer, yeah. Yeah, decades. And still haven't uh, really come to any formal conclusions, as we know. So, yeah. so we think that there are a lot of gaps um, that need to be addressed and need to be advocated for. One of the interesting things in the United States is because of the use now of the ICD-10 codes, which were, which still are sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock, the national government is recognizing the prevalence and the frequency 
of sepsis diagnoses. And so we are now, uh, it's the second most common diagnosed condition in hospitals in the United States and the most expensive condition. So more money is being directed towards sepsis trials by the NIH than ever before, and it's also true in the European countries. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been extremely successful in raising awareness of sepsis early intervention, among other successes. What do you consider the greatest current challenges of the campaign? Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. Well, from the very beginning, I would say that the biggest challenge, the two biggest challenges in the... um, that we faced in the campaign was one, first and foremost, data entry. That, um, as you remember, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has always been an unfunded initiative for local institutions. And so finding someone to enter the data was always challenging. In the United States, that's gotten a little bit easier because of the SEP1 initiative from CMS. So hospitals are more regularly using data collectors and chart abstractors to identify patients with sepsis. So that's become a little bit easier, but it's still a challenge to enter the kind of data that we need for any large performance improvement initiative. The second challenge is resistance of physicians. That's always been it, right? Yep. And, and now one of the ways that's manifest <clears throat> is a, a um, reluctance on the part of many clinicians to give fluids to patients with CHF and end-stage renal disease, even though the literature, well, the, the one or two pieces in the literature, that have looked at specifically these populations have shown that, in fact, patients benefit even with the 30 cc's per kilogram. But still, there's a lot of reluctance. And so one of the things that we're planning now as a surviving sepsis campaign is to try to take the R1 bundle and do a a performance improvement initiative in North America and Europe to sort of test uh, and establish the credibility and the evidence behind the Hour One bundle and to try to use that as a way to overcome some of the resistance that occurs in clinicians for using it. It has always been a challenge to change physician behavior. Oh, yeah. So uh, you're not unique in that, but certainly you have a ways to go on it. Yeah, it's really true. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been expending efforts to resource limited areas, which is incredibly important um, on an international level. Can you talk about sepsis treatment in these areas and what is being done to try to tailor the guidelines and the bundles um, for success in that setting? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I certainly have to acknowledge the efforts of Chris Farmer and Martin Dunser, the two of them working across the pond and primarily doing... uh, pilot projects in Africa looking at implementing um, not the uh, current bundles but more appropriate bundles in uh, resource-limited nations. I I think it's really uh, uh, an eye-opener for us when you realize that what we take for granted like normal saline Mm -hmm. is uh, a scarce resource in many many countries. So even though we think, oh, well, no, the bundles are very straightforward. It's just blood cultures and fluids and antibiotics. In fact, in resource-limited countries, those are remarkably scarce. So I know that uh, Martin and Chris and the team are working on uh, a couple of more pilot projects, and they are in the process of working on guidelines for sepsis in resource-limited countries. I think there's no question that, that the 
treatment has to be different um, in those areas. And um, you're probably familiar with Maitland's FEAST trial in pediatrics looking at fluid resuscitation in children in Africa. And the children who got what we would consider in this country standard fluid resuscitation, 20 cc's per kilo of normal saline or crystalloid um, of some sort, had actually a higher mortality than children who were just started on maintenance IV fluids. And that has created uh, enormous concern and discussion in the pediatric critical care community about, you know, how do we fluid resuscitate these kids? Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting, though. I I think it's a two-way street. And by that, I mean in the same way that we can't apply what we think is appropriate in resource of full cultures and, and environments you, you can't do the reverse. You can't take think, something like the feast trial and say, well, that's why we shouldn't give 20 or 30 cc's per right. kilogram. I think that's exactly correct. You know, yeah. they, we have the ability to provide even, you know, oxygen and mechanical ventilation if the children develop hypoxia or respiratory failure. They can't do that that's in exactly Africa. That's exactly right. They, you yeah. know, they may have the, the saline, but they don't have the critical care. And it's a different population. The um, a large number of those children had malaria, which we don't see a whole lot of <laughs> in this country. Yeah, that's uh, right. And um, <clears throat> I, I think it raises a caution about applying guidelines across the whole world. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great point. One of the biggest uh, discussions, shall we say, that uh, somehow the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has always been in the center of controversy mm-hmm. from the very beginning. Right. In the beginning, it was about industry funding, and then it was about f- uh, the evidence base behind fluids. And uh, it's fascinating. I, I don't think we'll ever be able to publish enough data to convince people that that this is the right thing to do. It, and by I mean people, I mean academics. Mm-hmm. Because clearly, based on the data and the literature, there's a, a meta-analysis from 2015 showing 40 set studies and a meta-analysis showing a statistically significant decrease odds ratio in all these 40 studies when the uh, sepsis bundles were applied. And yet still people say, well, there are no data. But there are a there lot are of data. data. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that's sort of... Uh, one of the ongoing challenges is to um, help clinicians understand that although it's controversial, it's the same thing. It's not letting a perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. There are data <clears throat> and there are guidelines, but it's not one size fits all. Exactly. And, I, you know, I think that's an unrealistic goal for any set of guidelines, which is why they're called guidelines that's and right. not, uh, you know, mandatory requirements. I think that's true, and I think... The, as, I, as we're saying, the biggest controversy right now is the one size doesn't fit all. And so it's all about precision medicine and individualized medicine. And there's no question that's true. And there's no question there are uh, increasing amounts of published data that suggest that sooner or later we will be able to guide therapy and identify distinct populations for clinical trials. But truth be told, that's not ready for prime time yet. Right. We are not there yet. Exactly. Yeah, so, no. so therefore... Even though it's true that one size does not fit all, we don't have a way to look at all the different sizes right now. So I still maintain that it's better to apply a bundle that's been demonstrated to improve survival across a broad population in 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 uh, countries where the resources are available than not to do anything at all. 
I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, working on what are the different sizes, if you will, what are the different populations, and revising bundles for, you know, at least grossly, we know resource-limited areas of the world have very, should should have very different-looking bundles than resource-rich areas. That's the best we can do for right now. But, um, you know, as you said, we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. We, we need to start somewhere and, and modify as we go. I really think that's true. I think that, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> but I really do think that there's a convincing amount of data in the literature that demonstrates that if you apply these sepsis bundles across a population of patients with sepsis and septic shock, more people survive. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, I think we just summed it up very nicely, and I I really appreciate the questions. Very good. Well, thank you for being here today, Mitchell. My pleasure, Margaret. We have been speaking with Dr. Mitchell Levy about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and the future of sepsis research. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Baxter Healthcare Corporation has provided funding for this podcast, but all content was developed independently by the presenter. Therefore, the views expressed on the podcast are those of the speaker and should not be attributed to Baxter Healthcare Corporation. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care Podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.